I'm looking for guests, I always look for interesting people to talk to. I was offered a computer scientist, philosopher, lawyer, podcast host. But you know what I found out was most interesting? He's the kind of person who's going to be a client for MSPs and IT services customers. So let's get into Brian Beckham's head and talk on this bonus episode of The Business of Tech. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Brian, thanks for joining me today. Great to be here, Dave. Thanks for having me on. So you have such an interesting collision of worlds uh, that I wanted to get a little bit of a sense of because you're a computer scientist, philosopher, trial lawyer, and podcast host. Like, Give me a little sense of how you're doing all that stuff and and what you do for your money-making endeavors. Yeah, so at my day job is a lawyer, and yeah. I, that's what I do. I run a law firm. I've run a law firm, VB Attorneys, for 20-plus years now, and I love it. I love the people that I work for. I love what I do because, unlike a lot of lawyers who get roped into representing giant insurance companies or pharmaceutical companies or corporations that hurt and maim people, I don't have to do that. I get to represent the teachers and the police officers and the firefighters and the moms and dads and the kids that have been victims of corporate misconduct. So I, I'm I'm on the right side of the law. And, and it's, it's great because every day I get to represent real people. When I first started out as a lawyer, by the way, I was at a huge law firm that represented Fortune 500 companies. It became apparent to me very, very quickly that that was not my cup of tea. But how did I become a lawyer? You know, I, or in the early 90s, I went to Texas A&M. I was completely focused on basketball. I played basketball at A&M when I first got there. That was all I cared about. I was a jock. And I, was, I studied general studies, which is you didn't have a major, but you kind of can sample different courses. And remember, this is the early 90s. The personal computing revolution had just kind of gained steam. The internet, I think at the time, was still owned by the government. I had an email address, but it didn't matter because I couldn't email anybody because nobody else had an email address. So this was like at the very beginning of kind of the second wave of computers. And so I was real interested in computers, took some computer classes. I was like, hey, I'll be a computer science major, not realizing all the math I had to take. So I, so I, and then as part of computer science curricula, you got to take a minor. Most people would do things like math or physics or electrical engineering. And I had, I had sampled a couple of philosophy courses and I asked my advisor, could I just minor in philosophy? And they said, yeah, absolutely. So I tell people, I say at the end of four years uh, of studying computers, I had spent most of my college career sitting behind a computer screen with a bunch of nerds. And I didn't want to spend my whole life sitting behind a computer screen with a bunch of nerds. So I went to law school and 25 years later, what do I do? Sit behind a computer screen. <laughs> so, so anyway, but but it, it has been, I feel so fortunate because there was really no pre-planning to it. But like we were talking about right before we went on the air, uh, obviously a computer science degree is very helpful nowadays. 
But the, phil- the, ph- the philosophy component is just as important, I think, because a lot of the questions that we're talking about from a technology standpoint aren't technology questions. They're ethical questions or moral questions or philosophical questions. So it's kind of a weird degree combination, but I'm really, really glad that that's what I study. No, I appreciate the weird degree combination. It's a little known <laughs> tidbit that I have. A, I, my minor was in sociology and I'm a Beautiful. science major. So it's the same kind Love of thing it. of bringing people together. And mine tended to be larger groups. So any listener would not be surprised to know that I'm into the data trend. But I wanted to talk to you because in a way you're, you're almost the ideal customer. For a, for a lot of the, the people that listen to my show, because you are you run a law practice, you're yeah. deep into that field, but come with deep technology savvy as you think about this. So you're spending a lot of time thinking about the questions we're talking about right now on the show. And I wanted to get your sense of where your head is at in terms of, of the ethics that need to be put in place, the frameworks, the guidance to be effective with AI in your field. Yeah, and uh, some of you people, some of your listeners may have seen the story. This was a couple of months ago, I think, where a lawyer had filed a brief in federal court, and the and had written it with a with a large language model. Yep, and it had just made up a case, like yeah, a case covered, did not exist. It, so yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, everybody's heard of this, and so I mean, that's a perfect illustration of at least right now. Uh, and by the way, I've been using large language models for about a year in my practice extremely effectively. It's a complete game changer for certain types of tasks. That said, you got to read the cases. I mean, like the, the, and for, uh, I know a lot of your audience is very technologically inclined. Large language models aren't really general intelligence the way that's normally defined. What they are is they're statistical machines that try to predict based on context and basic statistics and some differential calculus what words are going to appear next. And sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes those guesses are wrong. And so you you absolutely cannot rely on it to cite things correctly. The other thing a lot of you listeners probably know about is terrible in math, which is which is very interesting from a technological standpoint. I mean, if you understand how the LLMs are programmed, it kind of makes sense. But for people to have a computer program that's good at English and bad at math is kind of a little bit of a kind of turns things upside down, if you know what I mean. So so when you're thinking about this, like how yeah. much, you know, you're a guy who's coming at it with some of the the, the skills on both sides of the field, but, but what do you see for your own, as an example of in law, like what do you think is going to be need to be rolled out for lawyers that don't have that technical acumen in order to be effective here? Like how much guidance are they going to need? And what's that guidance look like? It depends on who they are. And here's what I mean by that. There, I have this theory that there are basically two types of brains in the world. One type of brain is the brain where you come up with an idea and you, Dave, think of all the reasons that that is a fantastic idea, right? Then there's a different kind of brain where I come up with an idea and you come up, and this is how my wife thinks, this is how my law partner thinks. And they come up with all the reasons that's a terrible idea. And then I have to, spend time justifying my position, which actually is, is it's good that my law partner and I are like that. I'm, I'm the guy that comes up with the ideas and why they're all good. He's the one that shoots holes in all my ideas. I have to justify them to him. And so that, that's a good mix. But the, 
the point is from a technology standpoint, that applies too. So I'll give you just a couple examples. My, my law office went paperless 15 years ago. Back when we went paper, and I hear the same thing, by the way, every single time. There's no way a lawyer can go paperless. Lawyers will always use paper. I've always used paper. The judges want paper. I mean, it's just objection after objection after objection after objection. But what ends up happening after a while is you realize all those objections are just kind of habits and patterns of thinking and doing. And there's really no underlying reason why you couldn't do something like that. We went, we went to Slack to run our law firm seven years ago. Got this, We can't do this. What about email? We've always emailed every, you know, that kind of thing. It's the same thing every time. What about this? What about this? What about, I remember when I bought my first iPad and showed it to my partner. He goes, this thing is a worthless piece of, you know what? That's the only computing device he uses nowadays. So the point is your, your audience needs to understand, I think, that when they're pitching technology, when they're pitching new ideas, there's two different types of minds that you're pitching to. If you're pitching to me, a tech, a, a, somebody who's technologically inclined, man, just come up with the coolest ideas you can come up with. And I'm probably going to jump on board most of them. If you're pitching to somebody like my law partner or my wife, they're going to ask you a bunch of very challenging questions that you need to understand how to answer. What you're going to get, I can tell you, in the professional circles, lawyers, accountants, doctors, things like that, they're, they're by habit a little conservative in the way they like to do things, doctors in particular. And so it's hard to push professional lawyers, doctors, accountants, people like that, investment bankers. It's hard to push them into new technology because they get these systems and they get comfortable with their systems. And so you've got to, you've got kind of, you've got to overcome all these legacy habits and that can be difficult sometimes, but frankly, if you're, if, if you know what you're doing and you're doing a good job, you should be able to justify why you're doing what you're doing. For example, when I changed my firm to Slack, I said, how would everybody like to cut back 95% on how many emails we get internally? Well, that's that, that's something people really can get excited about, and that's exactly what happened. But the point is, is you're either going to be pitching to somebody like me, who's going to jump all over whatever great technology ideas you have, or you're going to be pitching to somebody like my partner. You better be prepared to explain why you're doing what you're doing. So, what's the conversation you're having right now about the large language models and AI in your firm? Like, what what's that conversation look like? The conversation looks like this. The conversation is, so we've been using large language models for about a year in my team, not in the entire law firm, because what typically happens in my business, I think this is, it's like this in a lot of businesses, is you'll start with a small group of people, we'll beta test the product, and then we'll teach the rest of the firm. We'll either jettison it, and I, by the way, I have plenty of crappy ideas, so... Some of my ideas need to be jettisoned, but if it's a good idea, if it works, then we go and teach everybody else. So what are we talking about at my firm right now? So what does a professional do? And I'm, I'm talking about any professional. When you really generalize it or abstract it, what, what they do is they process information, basically. that's My job is to process information a certain way. Doctor processes different information. Well, these large language models are very, very good at processing certain types of information. So I'll give you a, a very specific example as a lawyer. When I meet with a client or one of my staff meets with a client, 
We used to be sitting there with a legal pad, taking notes as fast as we can, barely pay attention to what the person's saying. Now you stick your phone down, you record it, the AI transcribes it. The AI also transcribes a list of tasks. The the AI suggests tasks. That is absolutely incredible. When uh, I'll tell you another way I've used a large language model, which might be surprising to some people. So some people right now, I think they think of these chat GPTs and large language models as like Google on steroids. So they do basically Google searches and you need to be broader in your way of thinking about these LLMs because why they can be great search engines, they can do way more. So, so here's a specific example. I, there was a particular issue that keeps coming up in case after case after case after case. It's an argument that the insurance companies make that basically in every case they blame whatever happened on my client. And I've been facing this for 20 years. Come up with a number of different arguments, a number of different ways to defeat this, but nothing that I really liked. And so I've had I've had the Chat GPT using a very long, detailed prompt come up with arguments for me, and it is phenomenal how good they are. I mean, some of them are terrible, but some of them are phenomenal. And so, to like, I don't know if you want to call it creativity, but for generating ideas, for generating subject lines, for writing, for generating arguments and persuasive things. It's amazing. Now, again, it's not a search engine, so you don't want to go, please find three great closing arguments on this issue. That's not how you want to do it. What you want to do is you want to say, here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I would like you to do for me. I would like, and by the way, make it five bullet points. So this is, this is called prompts is what they call it. The better your prompt, typically the better your output's going to be. So, uh, but again, there, there's also areas where the LLMs are terrible. So I, I can use an LLM to help with some research. And by the way, a lot of the legal research companies are, are obviously starting to incorporate AI into their product. But I still got to read every single case. I mean, it's, it is not trustworthy enough in that area to rely on completely. So to me, it, it, it's, it, it, this raises an interesting philosophical question, Dave. I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I don't know the answer, but I'd just like to throw it out there. Uh, we're going to maybe get to a point where because of these LLMs, because of ChatGPT and stuff like this, people don't write very well. Like their writing skills and their thinking skills are going to atrophy a little bit, right? Well, if that's true, how are you going to be able to know whether what the output is is good or bad? In other words, if you're not a good writer to begin with, or you're not a good researcher, or you don't know how to read case law, how are you going to check whether the ChatGPT answer is good or not? And so that to me is an interest. It's, it's like the supervisory question. You can't supervise people in a job unless you know what their job is, right? And if chat GPT and the large language models impacts negatively our ability to write and think, who's going to supervise these machines? I think that's a, that's a big open question that people aren't really talking about right now. 
It's a super interesting one, and, and I think we'll be exploring that as we get practical with it. And I want to get a little practical here because I want I want to throw out a premise for you, and yeah. I want you to react to it for me. Because you know, analysts like me, guys that are looking at it without who are deep in the technology and the implementation and the application of it, are saying, "Okay, I can look at a field like legal, and I can say the I I believe that the impact will be." Uh, very much to take away a lot of tedium of portions of it that are very rep- repetitious to it. I would think of like a paralegal and say like a lot of the creation of basic documents, yeah, that's going to get accelerated away and they're going to get freed up. How much of that, are, as somebody who lives in the world, how much do you think of that premise in the same way? I think about it exactly the same way, exactly the same way. And, you know, I, there's this fear that, a bunch of jobs are going to be lost as a result of AI. And, and I think that is absolutely true. And that is absolutely going to happen. As a matter of fact, I would predict that in the next however much, however many years, I won't put a number on it, but it won't be that long. There will be no radiologists. I mean, there will be, there will be doctors who will supervise the AIs that read the radiology screens, but ra- reading radiology films, AIs are already orders of magnitude better than a human being it's the same thing like you and i think you put your nail on the head it's kind of the rote work the the work that is not that fun that doesn't take a lot of intelligence but it's something that has to be done and it's just kind of repetitive we used to call it grunt work that that we we want those jobs to go away like we those jobs are bad jobs like we want people to have better jobs we want to automate those kind of crappy jobs and so what i what i think is going to happen i'll give you a good example very very practical example in my field so as a trial lawyer i take depositions depositions are recorded by court reporters that literally type on a they type in shorthand and then there's a videographer that'll video the deposition don't go to court reporting school or videography school if you want to have a job in the next 10 years, because those jobs are going away. You don't, you don't have to have somebody physically typing shorthand on a computer anymore. There's, there's actually companies now that have AI that'll transcribe the entire deposition, video the entire deposition, summarize it, put it into a nice format. So those are going away. But who, who, I don't, I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but that those aren't, the best jobs to begin with, like there are better jobs you can do with that kind of training. And so it really is a balance between figuring out what, what are the, what are the, what are the tasks that the AI is best suited to that I'm not better at and that my staff's not better at. And let's offload all of that stuff to automation. That, that, that's kind of my attitude. So, Sort of last big thought I wanted to ask you about here is, is, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started, that the idea that those who are necessarily building the technology, uh, the technologists themselves that are creating the AIs are probably not the best ones to answer some of the big questions. But people that are helping businesses with their technology needs might be. So I'm going to ask, like, what are the big questions, not the answers, but the questions themselves that are unanswered? that you're spending most of your time thinking about in this space right now? Uh, the, the big question uh, from a lawyer perspective, the big question that I'm asking is how can I use and how can my staff use AI, large language models 
to offload the stuff we don't want to do and to make ourselves more efficient in the stuff that we, that we still do. I'll, I'll tell you one problem with the efficiencies that are created by AIs and chat GPTs is I can produce about 10 times as much stuff. So I can, I can send out a lot more stuff, but there's still a limit to how much I can consume. So in other words, if I, if I could do five research memos a week, I'm just pulling this out of the air. That's not hard. I can read five research memos a week, but if all of a sudden I can produce 500 research memos a week, I, there's no way I can, I can process that much. So right now what I'm seeing, and this is a big question is the output has exploded. Like my output has exploded, but there's still a limit to the bandwidth of what I can input into my brain. I mean, this is Elon Musk's, this whole reason created Neuralink uh, allegedly is because he wanted faster input. He wanted to be able to process information faster. So in other words, using AI, one of the great benefits of AI is being able to do things faster and more efficiently, but how fast and how efficient until you get to a point where you're not You've got so much output that there's no input anymore. Like there's no time to digest what's being spit out. Uh, the other thing is, and this is another big question, I think, how much can you can you trust the confidentiality of some of these large language models? So these are all for-profit companies, ChatGPT is owned by Microsoft, uh, Bard's owned by Google. They're all for-profit companies. They're collecting the data. The data is being used to train the AIs. Obviously, medical, law, accounting, banking, all that stuff, highly, highly confidential information we're dealing with. So kind of the security around this information, I think, is a, is a big deal. And so I constantly think about how can I make sure that I'm using this product in such a way that I'm not producing too much stuff, number one, and number two, that the stuff I am producing remains confidential. Well, Brian, you've given us a lot to think about. I know you do a podcast. If people are, are interested in learning more, what tell them about your podcast. Yeah, it's called Lessons from Leaders with Brian Beckham. It's, you know, military generals, CEOs, New York Times bestsellers. One of the Republican uh, candidates for president was on my podcast a couple of years ago. It's just a great group of very diverse people talking about leadership and with a focus on positive leadership and uh yeah go check it out it's on all the different platforms youtube etc lessons from leaders awesome brian thanks for joining me today thanks dave really enjoyed it man the business of tech is written and produced by me dave sobel under ethics guidelines posted at businessof.tech like the content Support the show at patreon.com slash MSP radio or buy our Why Do We Care merch at businessof.tech. If you want to reach our listeners, visit mspradio.com slash engage. Part of the MSP Radio Network.